นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสะเมื่อคุณเปลี่ยนสภาพจิตของคุณไปจากความกังวลไปสู่ความกังวลไปสู่ความกังวลไปสู่ความกังวลไปสู่ความกังวลไปสู่ความกังวลไปสู่ความกัง
they're going to disrupt my samadhi. But this cannot possibly be the way to liberation. The other extreme is to think that you should not go off to the cave and practice meditation. Just be natural, let everything happen, which is true if you can do it that way. But if you don't even know what is natural yet, it's difficult to trust yourself. The word meditation covers many mental experiences, but the goal of Buddhist meditation is to see things as they are. It is a state of awakened attention. And this is a very simple thing. It isn't complicated or difficult, or something that takes years to achieve. It's so easy, in fact, that you don't even notice it. When you think in terms of having to practice meditation, you're conceiving it as something you have to attain. You have to subdue your defilements, you have to control your emotions, you have to develop virtues in order to attain some kind of ideal state of mind. You might have images of a lot of yogis sitting in remote places on mountaintops and in caves. Even a Buddha image can convey this sense of remoteness and separation, if you don't understand how to use that particular icon. And it all sounds very remote and far from what you can expect from your life as a human being. In developing an attitude towards formal practice or daily life practice, therefore, we often separate the two, the formal, quote-unquote, and the daily life. We think of formal practice as a very controlled retreat situation where we all live by a routine, a structure. And when we leave that structured retreat, we refer to daily life meditation. But that can seem hopeless, can't it? If we compare daily life with a very controlled meditation retreat, it's very different. But we can't live in that controlled structure as an ongoing experience. Geshe Tashi made this point last night when he said the real challenge is to develop attention, awakenedness in the flow of life. This doesn't remove the option of going on retreat or diminish the value of that in any way. The point is to look at meditation as awakenedness and awareness through daily life in whatever way we live and in, and in whatever conditions. There is in that the sense of allowing things to be in the, this present moment, allowing whatever the body is or the emotional and mental states are right now to be the way they are. Just be the observer of whatever is. Right now the mood is this. I feel this. Just be aware whether you are confused, indifferent, happy, sad, uncertain or whatever. Be that which allows things to be what they are. So uh, uh, this again this is a, a common theme of uh, Lumpur Sumato's teachings and um, as something that uh, myself and, other, and others who are teaching uh, uh, meditation here at Amravati and other places very regularly, it's a, it's a constant issue that needs to be addressed with that um, sincerity that we have, picking up meditation, putting effort into meditation, but then meditation becomes this thing that I'm doing, or I've, I've signed up for this retreat, I've got to, I, I should be working hard, I want to make my mind better, I've I've come thousands of miles to come on this retreat, and so I'm, I'm trying to make the most of it, or I'm, I'm trying to follow the instructions, I'm trying to be a sincere practitioner. And so that's all natural and good, but what happens is that then meditation becomes this thing that I have to be doing. So one of the little exercises or things that I point out to people on a, on a retreat uh, <clears throat> is how when the bell rings at the end of the sitting, there's a feeling of, Ah, right. There's a sense of relief, and not just because your knees 
are given permission to relax. But there's, at least in you know, watching how my mind relates to it, there's a sense of, ah, oh, what a relief. I don't have to do that thing anymore, even though that thing is meditation, which is supposed to be making you peaceful. You know, it's like the meditation is there to make your mind sort of peaceful and happy. But then, why is it so pleasant to not do that? Question. <laughs> so, I would say that the, it's the very fact of me having to do this thing that is the, the, the stressing uh, agent. That's what creates that, that sense of tension, a sense of obligation. When the bell rings, it's, oh, it's a relief. There's not a me who has to do this thing. It's just, oh, that's the end of the meditation. Now I can relax. <laughs> Thank goodness the retreat's over. Now I can relax. <laughs> but um, but and, and so that uh, this is what uh, uh, Lumpur Sumedha is pointing to over and over and over again is that me having to do something, which again it's 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 not the opposite of like therefore switch off and just blank out and have a very very long nap. So <laughs> see if you can you can sleep your way through life. It's not uh, it's not sort of uh, taking the other extreme, but looking at that very uh, I should feeling. Uh, and one of the most interesting uh, meditation objects is just to take the word should. Nothing else, no narrative, no, no, not even a me who should, but just, just the word should, whatever in your in your your home language, whatever that is, that sense of that this is what what you should be doing. You don't need any extra, just that word should. And to feel it, and feel the tone around that in your heart. Like, yes, what should I be doing? I should be doing something. <laughs> and it's just uh, in, uh, so deeply embedded within the conditioning for most of us that we don't even see it happening. Like, oh, I should, I, I should be there. I should, uh, I should get to the meditation. I should be trying hard. I should. Uh, I'm trying to be a good student. I want to be a, f- a faithful disciple. I, I should. <laughs> so it's completely normal and natural in some ways, but not everything that is natural and normal is helpful. <laughs> so that uh, the effort that uh, Lumpur Sumedha is making over and over again is to bring the attention to that I should, I must, I've got to. And so as effort is being made, it's not being taken over by that shouldness, by that, that sense of, of obligation or the, um, the habits of self-view that sort of, that and I'll move in and take over the, the efforts at meditation. Does that make sense? It's, a, it's an interest. I, I would recommend that as an exercise, that, uh, particularly if you are an extremely, the more sort of strict and obedient and committed you are, then the more it's helpful to get a, a sense of, of that should. If you're kind of casual and lazy, then it doesn't work so well. <laughs> Not looking at anybody in particular, but it's the, but if you have a sense of of right, I'm, I'm trying to do this right. I really, this is really important. I've got to. I should. That, that if that's something that's really strong in your in your character and in your your way of approaching your your monastic life and meditation training, then it's it's really a helpful thing just to to look at that that word. And I, I, again, I would suggest using it in your own language, whether that's Spanish or French or German or Serbo-Croat or whatever it might be, Japanese or Malaysian, Chinese, whatever, the, um, <clears throat> to, to get a, a, a real direct sense of the impact that that has on the heart. And just to look at that, to, to know that feeling of, of shouldness. And then that which knows the feeling is not 
identify with that. It's not drawn into it. In that moment, there's a, a sense of, of knowing that feeling as an object that arises and passes rather than, than a, a, a true statement. But I, but I should, I should. <laughs> it's that, no, that, that shouldness is another pattern of nature, like a, a, a snowflake or a cloud or a, a leaf. It, it takes shape in this way and then it, it has that form and then it dissolves. To continue, for the next few minutes, try to look inwards with this attitude of observing your mood, your mental quality, your emotional quality. What you might find, sorry, what you find might be very precise, like anger, or it might be something that's very sharp. A lot of our emotions are are just nebulous, amorphous, wandering things. But just put yourself in this position of the Buddha, Buddho, the knower. This sense of awakened attention. Not the judge, but simply looking and noticing what kind of mood or feeling you have right now. When you start noticing, really listening or paying attention and sustaining an awareness on just this mood or this mental state, you become aware of bodily tensions, maybe feelings of bewilderment, or maybe not quite knowing what you're supposed to be doing. But if bewilderment is there, be aware of bewilderment as a mental object. Put yourself in the position of the Buddha, the Buddha. Your emotional state and this, what am I supposed to be doing, question, will then be seen as a mental object. So that's a very good um, case in point describing that. I remember in this this very space, when Lumpur Sumedha was leading uh, one of the winter retreats in the late 80s, and uh, uh, he could see that there, there was a lot of um, so effort being put into the, the practice, but also that people were um, uh, getting very uh, sort of driven by this sense of, I should, I must, and I'm practicing, I'm practicing, I'm practicing with a capital P, you know, this is my practice, doing my practice. And um, so he was introducing this this approach towards uh, meditation and trying to stress this. And he said, and he, I remember uh, sitting on the Dhamma seat here uh, in the sala, and he said, stop meditating, stop. Sister Chandasiri, I can see you're meditating, stop it. <laughs> Santa Jito, stop it. Stop, you're meditating, aren't you? Stop it. <laughs> he was kind of naming people, so naming and shaming in the group. <laughs> so people were really paying attention. <laughs> Stop it. Stop. Don't meditate. Just just pay attention. Don't meditate. And so then he did that for about three weeks. Uh, just kind of keep going to that. Um, so we're all gathering together and having the periods of formal practice as a group. But he was trying to, to get this point across about the meditation that's free of doingness. And I remember one of the, one of the sisters... <laughs> During one of these those uh, those kind of teachings, she said, "But Ajahn, what are we supposed to be doing? <laughs> look at that! Look at that question! Of, uh, look at that question of what are we supposed to be doing? That's what you're supposed to be doing. Looking at that question, and yeah, in those moments, you okay, I got it. You know, then of course the thinking mind would get distracted, but you could uh, you could see what he was trying to convey in that that principle, as he says here." Um, <clears throat> put yourself in the position of the Buddha, the Buddha, so that, that quality of awareness, that, <clears throat> and uh, your emotional state, and this, 
quote, what am I supposed to be doing, unquote, that will then be seen as a mental object. So at that moment, there's the, oh, this is the, what am I supposed to be doing, feeling. That's what this is. So in that moment, the, the mind is not absorbed into the content of the question, the doubt, but rather it's knowing, oh, this is the, what am I supposed to be doing, feeling. Aha! That's what's present, that's what's present in this moment. Relax into the present. If you try too hard, you put yourself into a state of tension. So, it isn't a matter of making too much effort, but neither is it about not trying at all. It's rather a question of using just the right amount of attention to listen, just enough to be open to this present moment. If you force it, if you try too hard, you don't relax. Of course, if I say, relax, that can also mean lax, <laughs> and, uh, and you just fall asleep. So take it, sorry, that I should, that should have been, uh, I read that incorrectly. Of course, if I say, relax, <laughs> so you can edit that on the recording. So. If I say, relax, that can also mean lax, which is the English word meaning sloppy, lazy, not caring, and you just fall asleep. So take it to mean just letting go, not having to do anything or get anything. Awareness, or paying attention, is not a gaining situation. It's not something to be done in order to get anything or to achieve anything. This is not a worldly state that we have to get. We're not being encouraged to get our samadhi, or concentration, as we generally interpret the word. Nor is it a matter of proving anything. That generally goes with the fear that we won't be able to do it. Maybe I'm one of those people that will never get enlightenment. That's another one that we always, we all sometimes revert to. I don't expect to get enlightened in this lifetime. I just don't have what it takes. Well, don't believe that one either. There are all kinds of stress reduction programs around these days because modern life moves too quickly for us, actually. We are propelled by high technology and all the rest of it, into stressful, fast-lane lives, whether we like it or not. And this does affect us. We get a sense of being driven and feel restless, and tend to distract ourselves endlessly, which then creates tension and stress. When we do that to the body, however, it creates problems for us. Relaxation is therefore something that is encouraged now in our society, just on a popular, worldly level. I was listening to a recording recently of a woman teaching relaxation. She said she could not use the word relaxation, quote-unquote, now, because people try to relax. So she uses soft, gentle tones of voice instead, soothing, soothing. <laughs> this is an expedient method. Words and techniques are meant to help us. They're not like commands or things that we obsess ourselves with. Any kind of meditation technique or even the language that we use, is not to be taken as a commandment to relax. Relax! In terms of stress reduction, would not help very much. What does relaxation mean to you? I can't tell you that, but it's the ability to let go of the obsessive tendencies of a feeling that we have to do something. It's the ability to let go and let life be. I, I've got to get something I don't have. I've got to get rid of the things that I shouldn't have. These are subconscious influences, 
as Geshe Tashi was saying last night. They are underlying influences which are so deep that we don't even notice them. That's why the word relax can turn into another thing that we have to do. He says I have to relax. I should be able to relax, but I can't. What's wrong with me? This is where just allowing things to be the way they are comes in. Simply allowing tension to be. Even if you're stressed out at this moment, let it be that way. Let it be the way it is. Let whatever mental states you're in, even your compulsive tendencies, your obsessive tendencies, be what they are, rather than seeing them as, there's something wrong with me, there's something that I have to get rid of. Allow even the bad habits, the bad thoughts, tensions, pain, sadness, loneliness or whatever, to be at this moment. Allow the sense of letting go, let life be what it is. So in that, uh, that I encourage this kind of naming practice so that um, as a, a way of uh, facilitating this. And, um, so just to give uh, a voice and give a name to what you're experiencing, just like the, this is the, I hear what the Ajahn is saying, but I haven't got a clue what to, how to do that feeling. That's what this is. Or this is... Um, <laughs> the um, uh, I'm trying to pay attention to the Dhamma reading, but I'm I'm really sleepy and it's hard to stay awake. Feeling, or that I'm really annoyed with this. This sounds like a really um, heretical approach to Buddhism. Feeling, <laughs> so that rather than saying it should be there or shouldn't be there, whether it's good or bad or, or, or whatever, there's a, a naming of what's present there. Or <clears throat> when you so you've had an argument with someone and. Um, there's some, there's some, uh, been some tension between you, and then you know that you're going to be seeing them again in a few minutes' time. They go, oh dear, it's going to, I've got to see him, and oh, how's, that, how's that going to be? And oh, what should I, what should I say? And uh, so that you're feeling tense and anxious, and uh, uh, and planning what the the encounter might be like. So in that moment, uh, again, I'm not reading anybody's mind, or I've got spies anywhere. There's a. Uh, Arguments been going on, but rather, <clears throat> if uh, in that moment the, there's a recognition, oh, this is the I've got to see so and so in a few minutes, uh, and I'm worried about what it's going to be like. Feeling that's what this is. So there's a direct recognition of exactly what's present, without any commentary, without any sense of it should or shouldn't be there. This is what's here. And so when Longpo Sumato is saying, um, let whatever mental states you're in, even your compulsive tendencies, your obsessive tendencies be what they are, rather than seeing them as there's something wrong with me. So that uh, uh, it takes a, a quite a bit of mindfulness to, to in a sense, the stream of, of thought or the attitude, to, to have the real sati, the mindfulness to say, oh, that's what the mind is creating around this expected encounter or this thing that I'm interested in or this thing that I'm worried about. Uh, to catch that and to sort of replay it, slow, rather like taking a snapshot, you take a, you know, you take a snapshot and then look at the picture, so it's taking a snapshot, a, a picture of your of your mood, your mental state, and then spelling it out, just using language to spell out what's there. And that act of naming what that feeling is uh, has a, a, a mysterious way of, even though the feeling might still be there, it's uh, there's this sense of space around it, or a sense of a relaxation with it. Um, and so that in that moment... It's not something that you are, 
there's something that the mind is knowing. Like, I am worried about this, or I am excited about this, or I am annoyed about this, or uh, <clears throat> I'm, uh, I'm, I am sleepy, I am excited, I am, uh, I am feeling cold. The <clears throat> it's a, a letting go of that, that ownership of, of feeling, that the, the, the sense of, I am this feeling, or I'm the owner of this feeling, to that, oh, there is this as a mental, mental event. And so you're not suppressing it, you're not criticizing it, you're not trying to get rid of it, but just in that in a sense of expanding the view around it, then it's recognizing, oh, in, in, without any kind of fear or judgment or suppression, it's exactly what's present. And, but yes, in that moment, there's no suffering around it, there's no, no tension around it, no sense of, if I can get this, I'll be happy, if I can get away from this, I'll be happy. Um, but rather, it's like, oh, it's this. This is this is what this feeling is. So I and I use that as a approach to the practice uh, a lot of the time, <laughs> and it's a, a marvelous way of holding everything in, in balance in terms of of how we relate to uh, our own body, our own mind, uh, the people that you live with, the responsibilities that are, are there that you've got your name on, or the, the thing that you're doing. So before I go on, uh, any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Well, uh, the uh, it's a good question. Um, the uh, the quality of, of wisdom, uh, say mindfulness of wisdom, then say, well, uh, there's uh, that's an interesting thought. I wonder if that's worth following up or not. And then that quality of wisdom is brought to bear on that. And then then uh, you can experiment and see. Well, okay, well, let's just leaving just try leaving that alone, leaving that one alone, and see what happens. Let's try following that one and see what happens. So you have a, an experimental approach to it. So that, because uh, there's no real should. You know, people are always asking, uh, what should I do? How should I? But there isn't a fixed should. There isn't the fixed right thing to do. It changes second by second or millisecond by millisecond. Um, so I always encourage uh, an experimental approach. And to... To uh, rather like like own the reading from Lumpur Cha yesterday, I had the same sort of um, approach towards asking questions. I had a lot of things going through my mind when I'm listening to a Dhamma talk, but I would tend to just sit on it and, and uh, explore things to myself rather than feel I had to ask the teacher all the time. Uh, it was somehow more interesting or rewarding or more uh, helpful to, to to sort of sit on it and figure things out for myself rather than asking for an external authority. Um, but uh, the uh, everyone is different, and, and different. Uh, we have different moods at different times, and different things to go to work. You know, if it's like the weather's cold now, so then you uh, you need to to wrap up if you're going to go out, or you're going to get you get very chilly. Uh, but if you're sitting indoors and the sun's coming through the window, then oh, I'm hot. I need to take a few layers off. So the environment changes, the situation changes. So there's never a fixed formula of what's the right thing to do. But uh, 
uh, I encourage a, a sort of an ex experimental or exploratory attitude. Okay, well, let's try this and see what happens. If I speak up about this, uh, see see what comes of it. If I just sit on it, see what comes of it. <laughs> Very appropriate. <laughs> it's okay not to. It's all right. <clears throat> to continue, then. We seem to have problems in the Western world around guilt. This is very much a cultural tendency. In Thailand, where I lived for many years, not many people seemed to have this obsessive feeling. They knew when they'd done something they shouldn't have done. They felt the same sense of shame when they told a lie and so forth. They didn't hold this sense of shame to the point of it becoming a kind of obsession in the way that we seem to. We feel guilty about just breathing the air or being alive. They can go into neurotic tendencies. This is just my particular reflection on it anyway. The Dalai Lama said that Tibetans basically like themselves. They have a sense of self-respect. You can see this actually. One of the things that many of us Westerners find attractive in Asian countries is the fact that people seem somehow happier there. They're more accepting of life and don't seem to look at things in such a complicated way. I certainly enjoyed living in Thailand. Somehow life there became easier for me, even though in many ways it was more difficult because I was having to learn a new culture and a new language. On an emotional level, however, I found it easier. And Ajahn Chah had an unquestionable acceptance of things as they are and of me as I was. I never felt like that in the United States. <laughs> I never felt accepted or acceptable as I was. I always felt I should be better. If I were in a good place, I would think, well, I could be in a better place than this. The tendency towards guilt and negativity, therefore, means that one never feels good enough, no matter how hard one tries. So there was a, um, speaking of the Dalai Lama, there was a, a famous uh, occasion, um, uh, it was at uh, this conference in Los Angeles called the Harmonia Mundi, and um, uh, quite a number of years ago, and there was a, the, His Holiness had given a, a talk and opened things up for questions, and then somebody asked this question about about guilt. He said, you know, how well, how do you deal with with guilt? What's the best kind of meditation or the best uh, approach to dealing with guilt? And then His Holiness said, um, I, I hope you don't mind me asking, but have, have you committed some kind of crime you know, that uh, you, you you want me to know about? And you know, have, have you stolen something, or you know, did? Yeah, are you, are you, and, and, and he was quite shy and said, excuse me, I don't want to be rude, but you know, are you wanted by the police or something? And, he said, the, fellow, and the fellow said, no, 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 I'm, I'm a very law-abiding person. I haven't done anything wrong. I just hate myself. <laughs> you know. And uh, so what I want to ask about is how do you deal with that feeling of guilt and self-hatred? And at that point, His Holiness went into a little huddle with his translator, Tubton Jinpa, and we were, <laughs> and Tupton Jinpa was um, he was at Cambridge University for a long time did a, a, a doctorate a PhD in Western philosophy so he was quite well acquainted with the Western mindset and so uh, he was giving His Holiness a sort of a quick rundown on, on sort of the, the Judeo-Christian self-hatred model <laughs> and so they, they came out of their huddle and, uh, and uh, Dalai Lama said this is most unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> Because he's 
they're, you're saying that really there's no there's no reason they just don't like themselves they just feel bad about existing you know and uh, and and so then and then he said something like well he said, essentially it's a minor mental irritation ignore it and it'll go away and there's about six thousand people at this gathering and this whole place just erupted in laughter like ha <laughs> a minor mental irritation you know ignore it and it'll go away. <laughs> And uh, you know that he really meant it. He thought it was that was good advice because from his experience, that's how it was. There was also uh, in the um, early days of Chidhurst, there was a a, um, a, a Sri Lankan novice um, who was uh, part of the community in that time, and uh, <coughs> and I remember him saying quite innocently one day, he said to to Arjun Sameda, said Tanajan, I can't understand why you keep talking about self hatred. I, I like myself. You know, is, is there something I'm missing here, or you know, should, you know, am I, is there something I should be looking at that I'm not aware of? So you know, I look at myself and I think I'm I'm kind of all right as a person. You know? And it was it was it was really he wasn't trying to be conceited or proud. It was very guileless. It was just like, what's there to hate? I mean, I'm 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 a, I'm a novice monk. You know, that's not a bad thing. Why should I hate myself for for that. And he was really quite puzzled. And again, there was lots of laughter around the room. Like, <laughs> because he wasn't trying to say, you know, I like myself, but rather just, it was a, an automatic uh, sense that, that, he, that he had. He couldn't understand why, why uh, Lumpur Sameda would go on and on and on about self-hatred and guilt. Where for us Westerners, we're professionals. In, in the main part, we're very good at uh, self-hatred. In America, you're brought up with this sense of living up to high-minded role models and ideals. You're always looking high up and comparing the realities of what you are with some ideal of what you should be. So you always come off feeling inferior. How can it be otherwise? There's no way out of that one. We are not ideals. This is not an ideal. This is the reality of flesh and blood nerves and senses. It's all sensitivity. This is not, I guess he was indicating his own body, this is not like a Greek statue sculpted in marble and perfect in form. The Greek statue does not have to deal with nerve endings, toothache, old age, or anything like that. It's an ideal, an icon, like the Buddha image. It's perfect. In the case of the Theravadan school, the Arahant, fully enlightened one, is the ideal. The tendency there is to take the word arahant and place it on a pedestal of idealism so that it remains remote and too high for us. We just cannot relate to it. We merely worship it from down here and maybe feel better for doing so. Looking up and worshipping an ideal can be, can be inspiring, can make us feel good. But then when we come back to ourselves again, the way, to the way we are, what happens in our lives with our families, children, husbands, wives, neighbours, governments, in, a commun in community life, like at Amravati, we're living with basically good people. It's a very nice life, a well-supported life. Yet the suffering, just with the personality conflicts, is endless. Of course, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> the suffering, just with the personality conflicts, conflicts, is endless. This person doesn't get along with that person, and that one doesn't get along with someone else. But I can't imagine that it will ever be possible to solve these problems by everyone developing the same personality. 
allowing things to be what they are, is the attitude I found most helpful. The way I am on a personal level, my emotional habits, my personality, in any of its aspects, good or bad. This also allows me to accept other people for what they are. It's a question of starting from here. If I can't do it here, I won't be able to do it with others. Sometimes, how we criticize others is really a reflection of how we look upon ourselves. So this, um, uh, so this comment that he makes here about trying to solve all the problems by everyone developing the same personality, of course, is, is kind of ridiculous, but we do, we do tend to have that attitude, even if we don't voice it for ourselves. If only everyone was like me, everything would be fine. And the, there's a famous, uh, in the early days of Photoshop, one of the, uh, the junior monks at Wat Pananachat, um, who was a Photoshop wizard, uh, uh, took the community, uh, like the group photograph at the end of the Rains Retreat. And this was when Ajahn Jayasaro was the abbot. And he put Ajahn Jayasaro's face <laughs> on, on, on the heads of all of the monks and novices. So everyone had Ajahn Jayasaro's head. And then he put the caption at the bottom, the perfect monastery. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's, kind of, it's a joke, but it's not a joke. <laughs> also, when, when uh, Lumpur Sumedho, in his very first uh, rains retreat at uh, Wat Pananachat, when that, when that opened in 1975, then uh, after they'd... Um, so that was the first time that uh, he'd been in charge, sort of officially in charge of this group of Western monastics and uh, having to have that responsibility in running a new monastery and so forth. And about halfway through the rains retreat, he went over to the Wat Bapong in a sort of depressed and hangdog state to, uh, to go and see Lumpur Cha and ask for his advice. And so, and so Lumpur kind of took one look at him. He was very, Lumpur Cha was extremely good at reading body language and he could say, oh, Samedo's really, <laughs> Samedo's really going through it. And, uh, he said, okay, so Samedo, how is it? Uh, is it okay there? And he's oh, it's so difficult, so difficult. I, I, I tell them what to do, and, and this one's really keen, and he overdoes it, and that one really, uh, uh, as soon as I say, I say go left, he immediately goes right. You know, Whatever I do, he wants to do the opposite. And, and Ajahn Chah thought this was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> he says, yeah, that's, that's it, Sumedho. You know, all those times you sat there uh, looking at me thinking, he shouldn't be saying this, he should be saying that. You know, that's not right, we should do this instead. You know. So it all comes back to you, doesn't it, Sumedho? <laughs> And then he gave this really good example. He said, it's like, if you, if you get all the monks to lie down on the ground, and then you, 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 you get a string, and you line up all their heads in a neat, nice, neat line, okay, they're all in a perfect straight line. They're all kind of absolutely in, uh, in, uh, lined up and, uh, and in order with each other. And then you look at their feet, and their feet are kind of uh, zigzag because they're, they're different heights. They're, oh, God, it's untidy on that end. So then you go down to the feet, and you get the string stretched out along the feet, and you get all the feet lined up, and and all the heads are out of out of alignment. That's how that's how people are, Sumedho. We are, you're never going to find harmony by trying to make everybody the same, or trying to expect the world to to be um, completely even. Or uh, like uh, Ajahn Sujita had this wonderful image of saying, "It's like ironing the sea." You know, ironing like <laughs> the, going out into the sea and uh, trying to iron the sea to make the waves all flat and neat and tidy. So. It's not the way the sea works, <laughs> but we can we can find ourselves doing that. And even though, as I said, it doesn't usually take shape in words, there can be that feeling: if only you were like me, we could get along. You know? 
You only just had the same ideas that I do. Only, you know, when I chant, if you didn't go so slow, you didn't go so fast, or you went so high, or you went so low, yeah. that uh, then everything will be fine. And that's this is how we are. We are always um, say framing our perceptions of the world. But uh, is it <coughs> the um, the way that we find harmony is having a quality of of acceptance, not being foolishly passive, but and just sort of dissociated or switched off, but uh, having a fundamental attitude of of acceptance. As he says, um, this uh, allows me to accept people for what they are. It's a question of starting from here, which is the title of this talk, starting from here, rather than where you should be. So if we if we have an idealistic perspective, and Western thinking, Western philosophy, Western theology tends to be very idealistic, it's sort of starting from where we should be, so starting from the ideal, and then the reality of how we are is sort of is left off to at the edges. I'm not I'm not as good as that ideal. I should try to be that ideal, but uh, the the Buddhist perspective is starting from where you are and letting the ideal be off at the edges, be like an informing principle, like a, a Buddha image at the at the edge of of the the room. And it's in a central position, and it's respected, but it's it's recognized as, as an ideal. It's not a living, breathing um, uh, entity like you know that these this Buddha image from Burma. It's been in that position for over a hundred years. Never had knee pain. <laughs> never, uh, never got too hot or too cold. No sore back. Doesn't have to deal with that because it's an ideal. It's not alive. So this principle of starting from where we are rather than where we think we should be is uh, is very um, helpful. And just to, in the beginning, just to notice how much the mind says, well, I should, making the how we should be more important than, than how we are. But uh, the this approach and, and uh, the encouragement in Dhamma practice is not starting from where we should be, but having that quality of acceptance of where we are. Like it's, uh, it's also like that. I'm not, I'm not uh, one who tells jokes very often, but uh, it's like the, the, uh, uh, the well-known joke where a uh, family are driving through a, the country lanes in their in their car, and uh, they <coughs> they uh, and they, they they've got lost. Their GPS isn't working. <laughs> so they're they're driving on these country lanes, and they they can't figure out where they are. And they, they see an, an old farmer uh, down by the his cottage, and they pull over and they say, "Well, yeah, we're uh, we're we're trying to get to Bristol. Which is the way to Bristol?" He said, "Oh, it wouldn't start from here if I was you." <laughs> I wouldn't start from here if I was you. <laughs> so it's a joke, but it's uh, it's also how often do we do that? <laughs> we, that uh, that's where we are. So we we have to start from where we we find ourselves. We, we work with this body, this mind, this personality, rather than trying to start with uh, where we're not. Ajahn Chah had this attitude about meditation being a holiday for the heart. We tend to see meditation as something that we have to achieve, another thing we have to do and get. But Ajahn Chah would put it in the context of a holiday. So try that. Try seeing meditation in that way. This is our holiday here, isn't it? The summer school is a holiday. But put that word holiday also in the context of meditation. 
You don't have to achieve anything, get to any great insights, attain any high stages, purify yourself, get rid of your evil thoughts or anything at all. We're not trying to judge thoughts in terms of their quality, for example. We're just noting that they are like this. If an evil thought comes up, go and kill Ajahn Sumedho. Just don't do it. <laughs> Refrain from acting. It's just another thought, isn't it? It is what it is, and it'll go away. Notice that we like challenges. Some people like to go to extremes, especially younger people. Young monks often want to go to a cave, go on a fast, starve themselves, test themselves by taking on difficult tasks that most people cannot do, because that is part of youth. They make themselves do it. But we can't do that kind of thing for the whole of our lives. We can't always be thinking that meditation is some kind of striving challenge for us. The real challenge actually lies in just being able to integrate awareness into the most ordinary things, into the mundane realities of daily life, into the most unimpressive aspects of what we do every day. This is being aware as a continuum. Being aware of special situations is one thing, but to have a connected awareness, the continuum of awareness, that's not so easy. It does take patience. When you grasp the idea of continuous awareness, you want to do it. But the realities are that you get distracted and easily fall back into old habits. So, patience is required. One suggestion of how to maintain awareness is to have a sense of humility and simplicity. These things help. There is a monk at Amravati who tends to strive too hard, then fail, then get depressed and frustrated by the thought that he needs more solitude, more isolation, and a different environment. He thinks there are too many distractions at Amravati, too many people. Of course, this was, this was 2001, so they've either moved on or they're still here. <laughs> I don't know. One way I have of handling this is to be grateful for the moments I am mindful. If I get caught up in the life of the monastery, pulled this way and that, and I'm not very mindful, and suddenly, uh, I remember. And I treasure that. I value that, ra uh, I value that rather than think, oh, I'm trying to be mindful, but I can't do it. Beating myself up because I vowed in the morning to be mindful the whole day, but failed. I would go into these states of, oh, there I go again. Shouldn't have done that. And nag myself, criticize myself, and feel like a failure. But even if there's only one moment in the whole day when I'm mindful, I can feel this, thank you to me. It is more helpful than beating, build, than beating yourself up, because that doesn't help you in any way. Meditation is not a matter of success, of being able to achieve goals and prove ourselves. Remember that. Our emotional habits are often built around success and failure, elated by success and depressed by failure. The way to transcend that, however, is through awareness, just in the present moment. This simple act of attention, this listening, openness and receptivity, then there's a sense of relief. Such a relief. So the... Um, <coughs> uh, this quality of... of um, of noticing when you are when things are going well and being grateful for that rather than uh, than focusing on the 
the negative and the critical. It's a, a, a simple approach and uh, something that is, uh, say, uh, it's not easy to do, but uh, if, if you take the trouble to do that, oh, isn't that amazing? I had a, a, mindful, a mindful moment this morning. I was actually paying attention to what was happening. Wow, what a good thing. That uh, that can be a, um, a great encouragement uh, for ourselves. The, um, the, the habit can be to think that I've got to be doing some special thing um, and that, uh, that if we're not doing some kind of special intense practice or we've got some kind of program going on that we're not really doing it, we're not really, not really uh, making the effort. And there's some members of our Sangha that, uh, that that's really very much their, their life. Is that they, Normality is the most difficult, that's the most testing ascetic practice be an average monk that just gets up in the morning, goes to the chanting, eats their meal, <laughs> carries out their, their duties, you know, looking after the, the stores and then goes to the evening meditation and then goes to sleep. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of unbearably difficult just to be average. And that, uh, so there's the, the mind, even though it's the things that are being done can seem to be that are things that are wholesome and good and, and, uh, and noble and worthy, that it's a it's an interesting dynamic that the mind feels like I've got to be doing some special definable thing in order for this to be worthwhile. But uh, this what uh, this uh, point that that uh, Lumpur is making here is that uh, it's uh, yeah it's not that so we, sh- we don't need to make effort, but seeing that the, the Dhamma is still here, whether there's uh, intense striving or not intense striving, that the, the fundamental reality of things is always here, that nothing is being lost, and that often that, um, that sense of me trying too hard, or me, me striving, is the, the very thing that's getting in the way of that real enjoyment of the life, or the, the real fulfillment of, uh, of this way of life. So that <coughs> there's a... Um, the, uh, an example that I I give about you know in in a certain cars you have a, a fifth gear you have a the four regular forward gears and you have a fifth gear which is called overdrive where you have the same uh, the same speed as the as the fourth gear but you have less less revs it's got the, the engine is in a more sort of relaxed state so the um, in a way the the ideal ideal <laughs> to use a dangerous word. Uh, approach is to have uh, to the have the overdrive method where you're just sort of putting forth uh, your your effort you're making uh, your your kind of commitment to, to, for meditation and training but there isn't that stressing or straining but there's just sort of dropping back into a, a few less revs to uh, to say re relaxing into that uh, the flow of each day's activity rather than being sort of swept up by that sense of obligation, and and, uh, and that I've got to be doing something, otherwise it's not worthwhile. I've got to be, I've got to be on. Re- uh, I can't wait till the retreat begins because when we have the retreat, then 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 I can then I'll really practice. But the, you know, how could the dhamma not be here before the retreat begins? Or you know, it's not that the bell rings and the dhamma stops. <laughs> Reality disappears when the bell rings. It's like how, it's ridiculous. But we we somehow we think that. Has to have some sort of thing that I'm doing to to make it real and valid and good and 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 also I'm 
uh, I speak as one who was very much uh, in, wedded into that idea of doing something and taking on difficult tasks that other people can't do and such like. That was my theme song for a lot of years, so I can relate to that. <laughs> so I'm speaking about this from my own experience as well, that uh, you can you can get really wrapped up in this kind of thing. And at the, at the end of... Um, was coming up to the winter retreat at the beginning of 1987. So I'd been here at Amravati for about a year and a half, and I had all these different different practices going. I was a sort of super strict vegetarian. I wasn't lying down to sleep at night. Uh, I had all these different kind of practices I was doing. And by the end of, of, uh, of 1986, I just felt so clogged, like this jam, like, a, my, like an arms bowl that was sort of filled stuffed full of of too much stuff and I felt like I was like a, uh, an, uh, an, over, an overfilled pillow and I thought I just feel so kind of clogged up I, I'm doing too much stuff so uh, anyway I went to uh, uh, to chat because uh, I was I was a monastery secretary here so we often have to check in with him about various different uh, monastery events and activities and such like and I'd Drop into his uh, where he he lived in the his little rooms at the end of the the old dhamma hall uh, where the temple is now. There was the old the old dhamma hall and Lumpur had two two rooms at the end of that where uh, was his dwelling. And I'd pop in often when he was making coffee in the morning, just by chance, of course. <laughs> and so anyway, one of these mornings, I said to him, "The I said, Tanajan, you know, I've um." I've decided to, um, you know, I'm really sort of overdoing it with all these ascetic practices. I've been you know, doing this for a long time, and and, I, and I've decided as we come into this winter retreat that I'll, you know, I'll give up doing all of these special practices. And I thought he was going to say, "Oh well, never mind, lad. You know, you've been really trying hard, and you know, well done. You've really given all this the Dutanga practices a good shot. Yes, okay. If you have to sort of slack off a little bit, that's okay. But you know, well done. Yeah." And so that's sort of the kind of response I was expecting. But I didn't even get to the end of the sentence. I said, you know, I decided to go up all these ascetic practices. He says, good! <laughs> About time! <laughs> what? <laughs> Finally! And he was waiting for me to get over all this stuff that I felt I had to be doing. And uh, so, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but it was, a good, it was a good teaching. So he was patiently waiting for me to get over Having to be the one who's the sort of, because I, you know, uh, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't use a zafu. I just would sit on the uh, on the cushion on the mat. I wouldn't, I wouldn't use a zafu, and and uh, so strictly one meal a day. Never ate breakfast. All that kind of. So I was, uh, had all this kind of stuff I was doing, um, and so I thought I, I was scoring points. You know, it's all the stuff you're supposed to do as a good ascetic monk, and uh, I was completely oblivious to the fact that I was sort of collecting tokens. You know, like, um, you know, so uh, it was some sort of a spiritual uh, prize that I was aiming for. And that, uh, and he was just waiting for me to, to, to get the point. That was uh, not the point. <laughs> so that, that was a very uh, helpful moment when he said, good, finally! Was that, uh, oh, he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> he was waiting for me to get a perspective on that, rather than just sort of praising that as an end in itself. And so that, uh, 
<coughs> it's uh, it's easy to do. It's not doesn't mean to say that it's not worthwhile doing those uh, dutanga kind of ascetic practices and such like. They do have a place, but if they become an end in themselves, becomes this thing that I'm doing, and it makes you feel like you're somebody who's doing something. Then it um, uh, it diverts the attention from where the where the mind is really getting um, uh, getting lost, getting getting caught up. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Yes. Yeah, well, the um, uh, it's different ways of creating a sense of urgency. Um, so, the uh, reflections on death, if that is has any impact, that you have uh, the average human uh, life expectancy is three or four seconds. That you can only reasonably expect to live for another three or four seconds. Beyond that, it's that's it's all it's all extra. So that uh, when the, when the Buddha was uh, had, there was a, a dialogue the Buddha had, where he asked the group, uh, "How long is a human lifespan?" And the first one said, 70 years." Like, you don't understand. 60, 50, 30. You don't understand. 20, 10 years. You don't understand. Five years, four years, three years. You don't understand. A year. You don't understand. Half a year. You don't understand. One month. Half a month. One week. Three days. One day. You don't understand. Half a day, you don't understand. <clears throat> the time it takes to eat a meal, you don't understand. Finally, the the last one said, the the time it goes from it takes to go from the beginning of an in breath to the end of an in breath, or the beginning of an out breath to the end of an out breath. He said, you understand. So if you time it, that's three or four seconds. That's how long we can reasonably expect to live. So if you have an aneurysm right now, like a blood vessel pops in your brain. So you have about three seconds, four seconds to get it together before it's all over. <laughs> Seriously. So uh, a, a practice that I used to do in that, in my, <laughs> my zealous era, was that I would look at every meditation, because also I wasn't ringing the bell, you know, Lumpur Sumedha was ringing the bell. So I would look at every meditation as uh, possibly the last hour or half hour of, of my life. And when the bell goes, then that's your last moment. And you've got until the sound of the bell fades away to get ready to go. And it's really an interesting practice to see what your mind is dwelling on when the bell goes. <gasps> Oops! <You know. laughs> to quickly drop that whole program that you're absorbing into. And Okay, this is the end of my life. Okay, is, is there readiness to let go of everything? So, developing a sense of urgency uh, through that that kind of contemplation is is a, is a useful thing. Also, just looking at the results of being lazy. Can you snooze your way to enlightenment? Yeah. And that uh, say, well, yeah, this is comfortable, but it's in some respects, but it's also 
uncomfortable and unliberating in other respects. So just looking at, so looking at the negative results of of a choice of action, and often that's the most helpful thing. Is that, okay? Well, I uh, there wasn't any morning chanting today, and it's already twelve minutes past seven. And I'm thinking about hmm, how much longer can I wait before all the breakfast is gone? <laughs> Not really anybody's mind. So, just in case. so then, and then to to look at that that mind state, which is a you know something that a train of thought that might go through the mind. And then just to consider, well, how beautiful is that? How how noble is that mind state? Is that something that's really, really inspiring or delightful? Well, how is it? How does that feel? That kind of uh, uh, laziness and self-interest. So you're not saying, I'm a horrible person, I'm a terrible person because I think this, but just to take a thought like that and to say, okay, now, is that something that I would be inspired by in somebody else? How does that feel? What's what's the what's the result of that? And thus to um, uh, to to look with a with a uh, an objective eye on those uh, on the results of our actions, or if other ways that we can be kind of lazy and oh somebody else can do it, to 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 kind of catch that and, and re- revisit it and say well how how beautiful is that? How noble is that? Is that something that's that's delightful to the heart? And without, with, with, with as little bias as possible, just to, to look at that and think, yeah, that's pretty manky, really. That's not, not very gladdening or inspiring. It's understandable enough, it's human enough, but yeah, we can do better than that. So that then you're, you're able to uh, discern a, a good way forward or you know, ways of, of acting and being that are more energized or more encouraging, but not because of a sort of, you know, you should, um, coming from outside or a sense of, of being compelled, but just because it's coming from your own heart. You, you want to do better. You want to, to not be guided by that. It's something that you know that that doesn't have to be the, um, the guiding principle of your life. Okay. Namakatha satukalam tatamase